Welcome to Trollerton Behind the Scenes. I'm Chad Corey. Well, hello and welcome to Behind the Scenes. And today we're going to talk about Return of the Wizard King. And Return of the Wizard King, obviously the first book in the Wizard King trilogy. Last episode, we talked a little bit about what was my thinking, what went into the process of doing the overall trilogy and why it was done the way it was and you know the time periods and stuff and how it was broken down and, and things like that. Today, I'm going to look at the particular book itself, the first book, and get into some nitty-gritty elements of it, some more behind-the-scenes stuff, DVD things, stuff like that. So I will definitely be sharing spoilers. Again, I will definitely be sharing spoilers. So if you are one who has not read the book yet or does not want to have the stories uh, ruined by information that's shared, then you might want to wait and stop, read the book first or whatever you're going to do, then come back and listen to this episode. But I'm just, just telling you now, that's my only warning. I'm not going to let you know every time I, I talk about something. So if you get something come up later on and you're like, oh, why didn't you tell me it? This is your warning. <laughs> I'm going to be talking about spoilers about the book and maybe even some other elements in the trilogy. So if you don't want to hear about that quite yet, now's the time to stop and go on to something else and come back later, like I said. All right. So now let's continue here. Return of the Wizard King was a very interesting book. It was the first book that I wrote in the trilogy, obviously. It was also the first really serious commitment that I tried to make to writing a novel in general. And as I was mentioned in previous episodes, it was written primarily originally in a like a late 90s or mid-90s kind of situation. And it continued to be written and revised and improved and uh, changed around throughout the 2000s and into uh, even modern times now today, modernly where uh, I was recently you know, improved and edited again before it went out to print. So it's had a long, long shelf life, shall we say, of uh, creativity, production, editing, all that kind of fun stuff. So it's been through a lot of different changes and evolutions over the years, and I'll be talking some about that today. One of the big changes, obviously, is in the character names. Uh, not, not everyone knows this, but there was a, a previous version that came out through a small press many, oh my, many years ago now. And uh, obviously, obviously the book's out of print, and it's, it's probably should be very hard to find because most of those copies were recycled and disappeared, so to speak, into the uh, nether world of <laughs> pop culture, whatever that is. But it has, it had some characters. Some characters were the same. Some characters were changed. the The big change initially uh, came about, I think, with. With Alara. Now, Alara is the, obviously the Alvin character in the, the story, the, the female lead, and she was originally called Clara. And why the name was changed was I was dealing with a an editor and an agent at the time, and she kind of made a good point. I I don't know if I looking back now if that was entirely I agree with it, but I, I did at the time, and I, I still kind of do for the most part. She made the comment that you have all these characters that have C names because you have Cadrith, you have Cadrissa, you have Clara, and she was making the point that you have all these similar looking and similar sounding names together, and if you start getting them meshed together in rapid fire succession for you know attrib attribution for dialogue or descriptions of things that are going on, that could lead to some type of confusion to the reader, and you know initially. I kind of res resisted that for a little bit, but then I came to the realization, you know, she's probably right. 
And the more I thought about it, it, it did make more sense. And actually, as I got into the book more and did more research and development in the world setting as the years progressed, I realized that was a good choice to make because Alara sounds more more foreign to our ears, shall we say, and that fits in with that more mystical kind of Western elven society over there on the uh, other part of the world. So actually, that ended up being really, really a good change. Another change that was made was in the, the Haddock's name initially, and this was for the better. Um, Haddock initially was called Hoodwink, and uh, that it was meant to be kind of a joke, <laughs> meant to be kind of a funny inside thing with myself. And uh, that was, in fact, if you read the initial beginning of the book, it was called Hoodwink. And it just meant to be kind of a joke because he's kind of, be, he was initially supposed to be kind of more like this this roguish thief kind of character and he was trying to be sneaky and do different things and that changed over the progression of the story and even in the initial story that got released and but the name kind of stuck there and then I realized that you know as the book continued to evolve and it got more to where it is today I realized you know we do we don't really need that name it just it's it doesn't fit it's it's not comedic in any way it just it sounds kind of kind of dorky so we changed it to Haddock, and I, I liked it much better, and I think people do too. It just it flows better. And it's more, again, it's more realistic, because you have to understand, when I was writing this book initially, I was probably in high school. Actually, I wasn't I was in high school. I wasn't probably. I was in high school, and I had a different, different <laughs> mentality, a different maturity level, a different understanding of what went into making story, different ideas of craft. Uh, even just a different idea of legacy as far as how this stuff works. Now now that I'm older and more mature in some things, I, I see now the benefit of having things done right from the beginning because once you print something, it's basically there forever. I mean, yes, it might go out of print and disappear and things like that, but especially in our digital age or if something's done or people get the book, it's, it's, it's there forever. So it's wise to have a, a strong foundation from the beginning and a clear idea of what you want to do from the beginning because... It's rather hard to change once things have been, you know, established and published and, and, and so on and so forth. So that's why I'm happy that the names were changed. Um, again, Haddock is probably the most noticeable name. Uh, well, the other one, too, of course, is the, we didn't call Cadroth Cadroth. We had him in that previous version called The Master, which was kind of, I guess, a nod to my old Doctor Who days, and which I'm glad we, we took out of there because... People might associate that with Doctor Who. And I'm always telling people on the Culture and Worlds podcast and other places that it's, it's wise not to incorporate pop culture things or names or stuff in your work because it can lead to some challenges. And so that's what I wanted to do is just take that out because it did have a connotation that might not have been... It might have started getting people thinking a different way and other people thinking a different way as far as what does the master mean? Is it some weird you know, bondage guy or something that you know, some slaver, you know, weird, weird things that begin thinking in people's minds. So the farther we can get away from that, the better. And so I liked it a lot better, obviously, by changing it to a real person's name. We had more of a story. And actually by doing that, we were able to incorporate more of a humanity to the character of Cadreth that wasn't necessarily initially there. He did, he became not so much the, the, the two-dimensional villain character that he was in the initial concept and some of the parts of the story, the initial story, he continued to be a very interesting dynamic uh, character throughout the entire trilogy, as as you'll see as you read it. And I'll talk about that more here shortly. But those are the big big name changes. Obviously, there are changes with some of the 
uh, random characters that we come across and other things in the story as well. But that's those are some of the main ones I, I wanted to point out just for some fun that people might not necessarily know. But I think you think you'll probably agree the changes were made probably for the better as far as their names and the the, the overall storyline and structure goes. Like I said, for for obvious reasons. But the big thing also besides the names was how how do we tell this story? Because I mentioned in the last episode breaking down the actual trilogy that got done initially, and that was it wasn't as challenging as actually writing the the stories themselves. Again, I was a kind of a newbie to this. I was writing my very first novel, and not just one novel, it's part of a trilogy. So you're trying to figure out how to pace everything, how to put everything together. And as I mentioned in the last episode, the idea was that I didn't think I wanted to start with the traditional everyone meets in a bar and they have a mission suddenly and they go off and do it. That was the flavor of, of the month, shall we say, of most of the stories that were coming out there, or to some extent that there was a, a convenient convenient way that everybody was already together or they already knew each other. You kind of started halfway in the adventure and you did a lot of flashbacking and sharing info dumps and information that way about the story that got them there. And that was kind of initially what I was doing with the first book. Well, I shouldn't say the first book. The very first incarnation of the book is was a very flashback-heavy situation. In fact, we started with uh, Dugan running through the jungle as we get into later. I think it's chapter 3 or 4 in the new book. But we start with him, that's where we start, is him running through the, you know, very fast-paced action type of thing. We start with him running through the jungle, and uh, or the trees, I should say, and we have to, then we, you know, then we just do a whole bunch of flashbacks. Why is he in the jungle? What's going on? What's he running from? And so it was a, a constant back and forth and a constant info dump of things that just, just for me, I, I thought it worked at the time, but looking back now, it was just very a very strange juxtaposition really broke up the, the, the narrative and really broke up the pace because you have one scene where it's all basically him running, you know, breathlessly breathlessly running through the forest and trying to get away from, you know, Colony and the, the time of the gladiatorial combat thing he ran away from. And and then you cut from that all the way to something more calming and, and uh, you know, something completely different, like him getting, you know, tied into slavery and all that kind of stuff. So it was a very strange type of, I don't want to say disjointed, but it just didn't work well for the story. And I realized that I was doing a lot of telling, and I wasn't doing a lot of showing. I was telling what he did, and I was telling why he's left, and, you know, and it just didn't, it just didn't seem right. And then the more I wrote the story, and especially the more I got into, like, book two and realized how much of a pivotal character Dugan was going to be, especially into book three, I realized that isn't the best way to go about doing it. And so decided, or I guess was led to make the decision to do something different, which I said in the last podcast, which was to extend the beginning of the story further back and actually get into the lives of these people before they met and get them on the path to meeting in, in the early stages of the book. Now that can be risky, that can be challenging because you're you're introducing a lot of characters in the beginning and you're not necessarily having a continuous connection to everybody right away. A lot of books, uh, a lot of authors in general will like to have things connected pretty early on and have that stay throughout the book. And this was a little bit different and I'm actually glad I did it this way because the further I went in the book series, book two and book three, and even in book one writing it more, the more I realized it was important to actually have 
those scenes and that introduction to the characters because that really formed the core of who they were and oddly enough we keep going back to that in every every book and so it was very important to have that fleshed out and exposed and explained to people before we got to their actual meeting and i just because for example when you you i you have a very visceral a very emotional type of experience with Dugan that you you might not have had before if you just were introduced to him halfway through his journey to to freedom. I mean, seeing him before in the arena doing things with the fighting and him and Leka, and then having him uh, have all the issues of being beaten up and then almost being killed and then having him sell his soul and then going on the revenge spree. I mean. It was almost like a little mini story in and of itself and you needed to see that because you needed to experience that because then you really get a deep connection with with Dugan and you really get a, a, a feeling for this guy I can relate to him I might not relate to him like going and killing people but I can relate to him and what he's going through to some extent and that was kind of crucial and kind of key to do that for the initial introduction for his character and it was also important to get Rowan's introduction in there uh, again people might think it was more of a throwaway type of introduction but it was it was needed because he was such a pivotal character in in the trilogy and uh, that's all I'll say about that but if you notice in the first part of the trilogy there is a dynamic going on where you're basically having the story told a lot of ways through through Dugan he is our connection point to it but then shortly into their meeting up uh, together as a group, when Rowan shows up, things begin to change, and we start having the connection point with Rowan. And Rowan then becomes the through line for the rest of the trilogy. Now you could say, well, why why do you not you know, have Rowan be the connection point from the beginning? His story just didn't necessarily work out that way. I actually tried it that way. I actually tried making him the main character in the story in a different version of the book and it just it just didn't flow right the, well, the challenge was that he was coming from a different part of the the world and it took him a long time to get there and i was trying to keep this on a timeline uh, if that's another reason why the chapters are kind of spaced out and paced the way they are if you look at it chronologically all this stuff is stuff is happening correctly in chronological order now you could say, well, you could always do, you know, this chapter earlier. That yeah, there, you can do that. I've done that. I've cheated a little bit here and there. I've smudged some things together and gotten that in there. But the overall structure of the narrative, the the pacing of the, the chapters and story, is very chronologically uh, centered and specific. And so that's why you have to have these chapters set up the way you do. And that's why you didn't have a lot of Rowan initially until you get to them meeting in the city. But actually, that worked out well in my in my assessment of it because it gave us the opportunity then to really get to know the other characters, and so then you really get a sense of Rowan being the outsider because you don't you're not really familiar with him yet by the time he incorporates himself into the group, and so he can he can kind of conveniently be that outsider and be another set of eyes looking at the group from another you know foreign type of view. So. It actually worked out very well, but that's that's why we did, you know, that's why the chapters were done in the way that they were done, is because I wanted to have some background for the characters to touch base with, and you'll see that later on in the future installments of the trilogy that there was a reason why we had to have some more background and connection points because it ties in a lot to what goes on 
with the, uh, the story itself, and the characters needed to have a little bit more background that people could relate to and connect with as part of their overall story journey just for themselves. Because each character obviously is going to have their own journey, and each character is going to have a larger journey as a group dynamic as well. And speaking of characters, one fun thing I wanted to do was try and incorporate as many different aspects of the world setting into the overall trilogy. Uh, when you do a massive epic type story like this, it was big, of course, when I was writing it back in the 90s and even into the 2000s that you try and have this world-spanning epic where you have to go across the entire world and you have to have these little stops and little interactions and go visit their, you know, sweet shops and go visit their, you know, hotels and things and have interactions and basically a little tour of the whole world as you as you try and save it. I didn't want to necessarily do that because I thought that would get kind of boring and tedious, but I did want to showcase as much of it as possible. And this unique storyline allowed for the possibility of us traveling to more than one location and doing more than one thing. And so I liked that and also allowed for the possibility of interacting with more different races, which I thought was kind of key because I wanted to showcase more about what the world setting's about. I wanted to give the impression of a very dynamic and different type of world setting that might not have necessarily been the case for all the fantasy worlds that were going on at that point in time. And so I wanted to have, you know, here's what a dwarf is like, here's what some elves are like. And that was a perfect opportunity because given that Rowan had his issues with the elves, it was a perfect way to allow us to compare and contrast the differences just through him, just just by his observances and the conversations and things. We can compare and contrast the, the, the Patriot elves versus the uh, the Elelium uh, elves, and then uh, talking about how they're different, and then we got a different uh, perspective on on humanity, how we have the Talborians and the Selators and things like that. So it's just a fun, and the Nordicans. So it was a fun way to do some compare and contrast in some subtle but not so subtle ways, introduce concepts and ideologies and things into the equation as well. Um, obviously, with the we had to have a wizard in there, of course, because it's the Wizard King. So we had I I thought Kadrissa worked really well with introducing the concept of the mage and she was kind of a fun character to to bring along kind of not necessarily the naive stupid character but she definitely had some elements that were not you know she had some her naive moments shall we say but she was someone certainly interested the scholar the the person interested in learning so she provided us the opportunity as the reader and me as the the writer the way to share more historical tidbits without it seeming to be kind of you know forced kind of thing so that was a fun way and a fun avenue to to do that. Obviously, I had a lot of fun with Cadrith. I just thought he was a fun character to introduce because we we needed to have a foundational element for the Wizard Kings as well. And having Cadrissa play the foil to Cadrith as far as explaining things through dialogue and explaining what she understood about the Wizard Kings later on in, in the book and even in the series provided a fun resource and a method to, to connect and, and develop as well. So... It was it was a great I think a great mix overall. I, I would have liked to have added more things. Obviously, when we had Haddock in there, that was cool. That was fun, and giving a different perspective on that, and, and kind of sharing a different way of how how the goblins and other traditionally evil races are are portrayed or actually live their lives when they're not you know storming the Bastille or whatever to get their their hoard the the new wealth or land or resources. And that's probably a good segue into that aspect as well. There were some other scenes that were added into the book and other chapters that were added into the book. Some of them were changed, rearranged and such that 
added some elements I thought needed to be done to the book and gave us some foundation. For instance, we never had the first chapter in the book, which I think, I think now is pivotal. I think it's great. We have Valon arrive in the ruins, and he begins to fight the hobgoblins and goblins, and he basically becomes a de facto leader of the whole tribe and basically begins torturing them and, <laughs> and putting them into, into misery. Um, that was never in the first iteration of the book. It was never in even the recent iteration of the book until just, just this version of the book. And the reason why it was added was because we needed to have some more elements, some more background into why the transducer was so important. And I also realized later on by writing the stories, book two and book three, that Haddock would play a very important part in the stories as they developed. And so we needed to have his foundational element of story and background and such in there as well. And this provided a great opportunity because previous editions and versions of the book just kind of alluded to the fact, yeah, this guy showed up and just took over and we never really said how, we never really talked about what went into it. But basically in just that very short introduction, the very first section of the chapter, we establish him as a character that is something that a powerful figure. We show that there's a reason why they're not going to go against him as, you know, trying to attack him because he can basically kill them all if he wants to. And so they're trying to have this working relationship with them where they're trying to bide their time until they figure out a way to, to overcome and get him out of there. And we also have this solution now where we set him up as not insane in the beginning. He, it's a process where he becomes more and more unhinged. And so it was a very fun story arc that we got to flesh out and develop just for that. And it also allowed for the opportunity to go back and connect with the Hobgoblin tribe and connect with Haddock and to show how they're dealing with it. One of the other fun things of the book, which I didn't, I thought was really kind of fun actually, uh, not because of what, what took place, but uh, was the whole transformation scene of Boaz. He became a different creature basically. And again, that was something that was alluded to in earlier versions of the book. He just, he basically, he already started out the story. He's already, you know, that way. And we don't really know how it happened. We just kind of mentioned, oh yeah, he got changed, whatever, part of his torturous thing, whatever. But it was, it was more interesting to see that take place. And it also allowed him a way to uh, show his humanity, if you can believe it, for a, a hobgoblin. A lot of people don't look at them oftentimes as maybe noble people. And that was the one thing I wanted to get across with Trollodrin, is that it's not necessarily cut and dry, black and white. It's not necessarily good versus evil all the time. It's, it's people. And yeah, these people are might be goblins, they might be hobgoblins, they might be elves, what have you. But they're still people. And you can have good people, you can have bad people, you can have in between. You can have people trying to do good things, people trying to do bad things, people trying to do their own thing. It was it was a way to explore what does it really mean to be a, you know, a hobgoblin in this area? What does it really mean to be a goblin? And that was a fun thing that I got to experience writing it because I just I enjoyed it. I thought it was really kind of fun showcasing the life and times of this hobgoblin tribe and it's not necessarily what people might think of it as being because you, you'd expect given the you know the cultural things of the the pop culture that we came from back in the 90s and even 2000s even now that you know the the bad guys are you know they're the, the goblins and hobgoblins have always been portrayed as more savage and maybe ill-educated and things like that and stuff so it's funny you have this this goblin who, who speaks different languages and he he can read and write. He helps the priests with things. You have these knowledgeable priests that know history and stuff. And you have people that are able to have a culture and stuff. It was very interesting to to showcase that, I think, for a lot of readers. And just to have a fun way to explore the world through a different set of non-human eyes. And I wanted, like I said, I wanted to have as many 
connection points as possible to introduce people to the world setting and give people different perspectives and different flavors of what the world is about. Because obviously, if you're a hobgoblin, you're going to be living and doing things differently than, let's say, elves or, or humans or things like that. It's not necessarily bad different. It's just a different way of living, a different way of interacting, different belief systems and things like that. So that, to me, was kind of fun to incorporate those elements into the story as well. But yeah, those are some added scenes that took place. We had the added scene with... I added some scenes with Cadreth and Sargus that weren't there initially and uh, added and fleshed that out some more. Some of that was going to be tied into what's taking place in future volumes and future stories down the road, so I don't know if I'll necessarily share all that right now because some of it might be uh, too premature, shall we say. But everything, like I said, there's Easter eggs all over the place with these stories as we write them up and move them along. But... In general, a lot of a lot of new chapters were, were changed around, added, some were deleted, some were put in. The, the big challenge that came at the end, I wasn't quite sure how to end it. And I, I played around with it back and forth for several months, uh, different versions and such. And initially, one of the fun things, I'll backtrack real quick, one of the fun storylines, or storyline, one of the fun chapters that was added, this came from the suggestion of uh, my agent at the time, I was working with the editor agent who had the same idea for the change in the names. She, she she suggested that basically we have to see how the characters get out of the ruins. And she was absolutely right. Because initially what happened was the uh, transducer basically got, you know, got destroyed. And they said, we got to get out of here. And then the next chapter is they're already out of there. They're safely away. They've, you know, the scene's been cut. We go to the next scene and they're out of there. They're watching the ruins now from a distance. And I initially fought that uh, with the idea, thinking, man, that's more work. I don't really want to, what does it serve? It's just them escaping. But it worked really well because I'm glad I am glad I took the advice because it, it, it did need to be there. And I provided the right balance and uh, flow to the overall action of the story. And it gave a nice resolution to things that came after that. So I'm glad we did that. Had it some more flavor and fun that needed to be there. So that was another scene that added. And there's more scenes that were added as they explored and things like that. So... There was a lot of revision and improvement that was made in the story. As again, as I learned and matured how to write, and I got a better perspective of what it means, you know, from a more of an adult perspective, how this would actually work, and what is a better way to look at it, perhaps, and what better way to do it for flow and such like that. Especially when you know the ending of the story, it's a lot easier to go back in and say, okay, this needs to be tweaked, changed, rearranged. But with the end of the story, initially, the challenge came into how do I want to end it. And the first idea was just to kind of end it where we left off with everyone kind of going their separate ways. And I thought, okay, that kind of kind of works. In, in, in a sense, it would be a basic ending to a story. If you didn't want to continue the trilogy, you could basically say, okay, the story is done. I don't really have to read anymore. They've completed their mission. It's done. We're good. And so I thought that might be the way to go because then it provides an out if people didn't like the story or something. They can just say, okay, I read the book and I'm done. It also gave people a sense of completion, which I've always kind of think is kind of important for stories. There should be some type of completion to something when you read it, so you feel like you get, you know, you're accomplished somewhere. But I, I, I played around with it more and more, and I thought, you know, we really have to know what happened to Kadrissa. We can't just leave her, leave her hanging. The problem was, uh, I the, the chapter for the the second book began right away with Kadrissa, and we we got into her storyline. And started figuring out what she's doing and where she's going. So, I mean, we already did that. The challenge was, do I want to take that whole chapter and mess up the flow of book two and put that at the end of book one? So basically, you're, you're kind of doing a, ju a 
disjointed thing. You're kind of ending the nice flow of where it ends, and then you're kind of like getting to this jumper, you know, mix up with the start of books too. So the idea came to me that basically what we could do is kind of like a I don't know what you call it, like a movie serial back in the day where they or like a a preview, like coming next week kind of thing on on this episode or whatever, is you'd showcase a little hint of what's to come in the next volume. And so the idea was that we take just the first portion of that first chapter, just the pivotal part where it's like kind of a dramatic ending kind of thing, and and leave that as kind of the cliffhanger for the book. And that worked really well. So we had a resol everyone had their resolution, everybody knew what happened to them. But yet we opened up the possibility now for something, oh, something drastic is going to happen. And it made for a great start for book two because we're continuing basically where we ended off, exactly where we ended off in book one. So all I had to do then was go into book two, change up the beginning just a little bit, you know, kind of condense it, change it a little bit so it's not exactly the same. It's not repeating the last, you know, thing that happened in book one and we had a nice transition from book one to book two and that became the format we used for the whole trilogy so when we got into book three basically what happened was we we took a little bit of ending from book two and then we kind of smoothed it out a little bit and that became the transitionary beginning for book three so it worked really well and it provides people and actually in looking back now it was very intelligent and led the right way there again too because it provided people a good connection point to get into the story because as you know a lot of times stories are released this book's a little different because we have a, a much closer release date for the trilogy but sometimes it could be a, a year year and a half till a book is released and so someone will read the book and then kind of forget what happens and then they gotta kind of get kind of get caught up to speed again and, and plug into it this way we the book is almost seamless you can we reintroduce what happened the last uh, last book with the introduction to the, the first chapter. And it's just a nice little way of kind of plugging things right away. And it worked really well. I'm looking forward to seeing how that works with people now as they begin reading book two and seeing if that's something that, you know, they enjoy or get a benefit from it as well. So it might be something I incorporate into future work if it's something that uh, proves successful on that front too. But for this trilogy, at least, it worked really well. And I really enjoyed it. And I think that's all I'm going to be talking about for this particular episode. We made it a little bit longer to begin with here. I don't want to keep uh, jabbering away here. But I think you get got some benefit out of this episode as well. I just wanted to share some behind-the-scenes goodies and stuff with you to kind of let you know some of the background of how it got established and what you're reading now, where that came from, the pedigree and the, the process, if that's of an interest to you. And if you have any questions, let me just say this real quick. Any questions, any commentary any things that you want to share with me maybe you'd like some questions that were generated off of what you heard today or maybe some commentary on things in general or stuff you wanted to know more about in general just send me an email at behind that's b-e-h-i-n-d at chadcorey.com that's c-h-a-d-c-o-r-r-i-e dot com and i'll be more than happy to see if i can incorporate that into a future episode or use that as feedback or information to incorporate into just designing different episodes in the future so i think that's it for now thank you so much for listening i do appreciate it and we'll see you next episode this podcast is copyright chad Corey. all rights reserved